Hello and welcome to Everyday Oral Surgery. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. I am an oral and maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Denver, Colorado. The goal of this podcast is to connect, learn, and inspire. In this podcast, you'll be hearing from OMS surgeons all over the globe discussing ways to improve the practice of oral and maxillofacial surgery. Most information shared in this podcast will be based on personal experience and opinions, so please supplement what you learn here with approved research studies. If you are a regular follower of the podcast, please go to our website, everydayoralsurgery.com, and register to receive newsletters and find links to our social media accounts. Most importantly, if you'd like to be interviewed on the podcast or know someone who you'd like to hear from, or if there's a topic you'd like to hear about, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com. Without further ado, please enjoy today's episode. All right, welcome to another episode. Today I'm with Dr. Dean DeLuke. He's an oral maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Virginia and teaching at Virginia Commonwealth. Dean, thank you so much for joining us again on the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be back. It's been a couple years, and I know you've done over 200 since then, so congratulations on that. Thank you. It's been a great learning experience for me, and I love talking with you. In our prior podcasts, we kind of both share some connection there with literature, and I was an English major, and you had written some books, and that was fun kind of talking to you about that. Today, I'm excited to talk to you about the topic of kind of anesthesia evaluations in the office. I think this is, you know, something the last few years that have been mandated by most states, and if not all. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about that. You know, can you just kind of explain what the purpose of the office anesthesia evaluation is? Sure. So it's essentially it's an in-person evaluation by a colleague and really evaluating four things, facility, staff, emergency protocols, and record keeping. And it's been done since the late 70s. And I'll just say tangentially, we've come a long way since the late 70s when I began my training with anesthesia. But one of the great things is it's really allowed us to more or less self-regulate in most states. So we're policing ourselves and, you know, that's in many states where there was a, a challenge of outside regulations, this was an acceptable alternative. Right. And then, you know, with the legislation and things that are happening with anesthesia and some of the pressures on our specialty in that aspect of anesthesia, are there any new kind of requirements or changes that we can expect to be happening with these anesthesia evaluations in the next few years? Yeah, there are. So let me just give a disclaimer. I, you know, I'm essentially giving my opinions as an individual, having done many of these both in Virginia and in New York State over the years. I'm not representing Amos or OMSNIC, although I've done a lot of committee work with both of those groups. Currently a member of the Anesthesia Committee in Virginia, but I'm also not representing VSOMS, so I'm just here as myself. But answer to your question, there are several new regulations. One is going into effect now or 2024, and that's a requirement that the office attests to quarterly mock emergency drills. And I think that's a good thing. And it's a way really that 
we automatically prepare for the site visit, but more importantly, we prepare for the eventual emergency that might occur. So that's one thing that's that's coming. Another thing is every five years, a surgeon will have to take part in a simulated mannequin program of some sort. Now, the one that Amos sponsors is the O-Beam. Are you familiar? Have you ever taken that? No, but I've seen it advertised and familiar to, with it. Yeah. So that's the office-based emergency airway management. It's basically a simulated airway emergency management program. And Amos offers that at their Laskin Simulation Center, the Laskin Institute, on a somewhat regular basis. It's offered at the Amos annual meeting, and it's showing up at a lot more state and regional meetings as well. So, you know, presumably those will be readily available. And a substitute is also acceptable. So Amos has criteria for acceptable substitute courses. We, with our residents, we do one yearly at the simulation center at the medical school. And that's even more in-depth. We can go through the mock emergencies. And if you've ever seen one of those high-tech mannequins, I mean, you know, you can make them talk, open their eyes, close their eyes, sweat, change the cardiac rhythm, change the vitals. It's very high fidelity and very realistic. So certainly one of those courses would suffice as well. And then the other thing that's going to be required is participation in the Amos data reporting system. And I'm not exactly sure what that's going to look like in terms of the data that's reported, but that's going to be another requirement. And those are all in 2026. So we've got a couple of years for those. And another thing, members are going to be submitting that directly to Amos. So that won't be the states, of course, will still do the anesthesia evaluations as required every five years. But for those new things, the surgeon will attest to those and submit directly to Amos. Got it. Okay. In regards to doctors and staff kind of preparing for these evaluations, I think we, at least I and my colleagues I know around here, we kind of check all of our office and make sure our equipment's up to date and our drugs, you know, are not expired and do some emergencies with our staff in case the evaluator asks them questions. But it's a little uh, maybe ambiguous as far as what to really prepare for. What do you recommend the people that you're evaluating prepare for for this um, evaluation? Yeah, I think a few things. I think one of the main things that doctors can do is just kind of put their staff at ease because in going into many offices, you know, I encounter staff that are terrified. And by just making it clear that, you know, this is a colleague coming in, not an adversary. And then every state has written guidelines, which are based on the AMOS requirements. So, you know, you know exactly what drugs are going to have to be pulled. You know what emergency scenarios are going to have to be gone through. So I would say just get together in advance, prepare your staff, It always looks so much better when staff can participate in the emergency scenarios as opposed to just kind of looking fearfully at the doctor to answer the questions. And I mean, those are the kind of people I want 
in my office in an emergency anyway. So that preparation, and again, that's kind of going to be automatically drilled into the system by the quarterly requirements now. But that kind of preparation, just putting staff at ease, everybody does them a little differently. I like to make mine, you know, a little bit uh, colorful, fictional, or cover multiple emergencies at once. So I might start off with a middle-aged man who comes in and is extremely nervous. He's a little bit sweaty looking, a little pasty looking. And uh, as you're getting ready to hook up the IVs, he confesses that he was so nervous he had about five bourbons the night before. So many are ready to potentially not do the case, which of course might be the right call, but that doesn't matter because as you're getting ready to talk to the patient or start to the IV, he clutches his chest and has some acute chest pain, which they're going to have to go through and manage unsuccessfully. So it's going to go on to an MI, which can go on to cardiac arrest. So that's the way I like to do them. But some might just say, how do you treat laryngospasm? Yeah. So it differs. And I'll do the same thing with airway, starting with a little simple extraction and go right on through bronchospasm. Right. The point being, again, doctors and staff know exactly which emergencies are going to be reviewed, what drugs are going to have to be pulled. And it just looks so much better when staff knows immediately where to go for the requisite drug. Yeah, I think what you're saying is my experience as well. I mean, I, re- you know, review the list of emergencies and I'm comfortable and my staff is always kind of freaked out and I review it with them and try to put them at ease. But I- I've noticed that because over the ca- last few years, I've had different evaluators that kind of do different things and some will just say, oh, well, let's just me and you go into, you know, your office and I'll run it through with you. And then others want to do it as a group with assistance and things like that. I always appreciate it when it is with the group more just for my staff to kind of, you know, put their knowledge to the test type of a thing and, and be able to show we work as a team and all that stuff. Yeah. And, That's and also, the way I yeah, I like to do them as well. Yep. And I like that your format of, giving it in more of a real life, you know, patient type scenario. And that's always helpful for me as opposed to just recite laryngospasm treatment for me, like that type yeah. of thing. Yeah. Can I say something about the organization of the emergency drug kit while we're on that? Yeah. Because one of the best ideas I saw, I always learned something going into offices and doing these, but one of the best things I saw probably over 20 years ago through Cal Amos, the California Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgeons, was organizing, and it's something I brought with me to my respective offices as, as I've moved, but organizing an emergency kit, whether it's a full crash cart or a modified craftsman, whatever you have, organizing them according to emergencies in alphabetical order as opposed to drugs. So, you know, first compartment might have allergy anaphylaxis. The next one might have angina and so on from A to Z. And then in each compartment is the rescue drug for that emergency, along with a little cheat card that has the dosages 
and maybe an abbreviated algorithm, or although most offices have a separate book with algorithms that they can refer to. But, you know, the common theme in poor outcomes is always pandemonium. And I think something like that can just go a long ways towards lessening the pandemonium in a true emergency. Oh, for sure. I love that tip. I recently organized my medications, like you're saying, kind of with a kit that has little boxes and a clear cover on top. And then I printed out like in this little box, these are the medications for heart attack. And I kind of put in layman's terms. That was more for my assistants in case I need them to go grab what, you know, chest pain grab in this box or, you know, um, diabetic issues, low blood pressure, all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that's good to have it uh, as opposed to just ephedrine in each little box labeled with the name of the drug. Right. I like your cheat sheet, though. That's a really good idea is having a small card or something that you could pull out, assistants could look at, you could look at whoever needs to, and you're all kind of looking at that and not relying solely on your you know, information in your head. Right. Good one. I, you know, in our podcast recently, I've reviewed some kind of anesthesia complication cases with my colleague, Dr. Liddell, and I know you've reviewed complications of various cases in the past. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about some of the complications you've reviewed. What are some of the more common anesthesia mistakes or issues that you've seen in the past several years? Yeah, so I think two common themes, and I know you did touch on those. I heard at least one of those podcasts that you did. But the two main themes, I think, are number one, case selection, and two, preparedness. So, you know, under case selection, if something's telling you maybe this isn't a case for an office anesthetic, whether it's body habitus or medical comorbidities or whatever it is, you probably need to listen to that little voice in your head. We had a program director in New York who used to like to tell his residents, general anesthesia is not a birthright. And I thought that was certainly very accurate. Not everybody's a candidate for office anesthesia. And then a somewhat a little bit cynical corollary to that rule that used to come up in claims committee meetings at times is that sometimes no good deed goes unpunished. And a common scenario there is the patient who doesn't have insurance coverage. You know, you want to do them in a hospital setting or some other non-office setting. They don't have the insurance coverage. They'll beg or sometimes be even demanding that it be done in the office. And again, we just need to know sometimes hard, but sometimes we just have to say no. And obviously it has to be done tactfully. We can explain. We have certain criteria for anesthesia in the office and you don't meet all those criteria, but it has to be done. And I guess a related somewhat related scenario that comes up somewhat in, I'll call them certain corporate practice models where a general dentist may see the patient for consultation and then the surgeon shows up eight o'clock one morning and there is a hypertensive diabetic in the chair who needs a really full, full mouth extraction with bilateral tori and they've got a pretty limited amount of time to do it. And what do you do in that setting? You know, do you have 
pressure from the the patient who's expecting to have it done, the referrer who is expecting to have it done. But again, not easy, but sometimes you just have to trust your instincts and know how to say no. And then I guess another under the common theme of pandemonium in the face of an emergency, that's where I think the well-organized kit and regular drills will will come into effect. So I guess those are some of the key things that I might touch on. So case selection, good workups, and I think doing what you can to mitigate pressure as well, like you're saying, in these scenarios where you have lots of pressure and things like that can help. And I'm familiar with that phrase too, no good deed goes unpunished. And I feel like... I don't know where that came from. I tried to look up where it came from, and there doesn't seem to be any real agreement on that. But it's cynical, but somewhat true. Hey, real quick attention to all residents and fellows who graduated within the last six months. Kalos Martin is offering one-time sale pricing for newly graduated oral and maxillofacial surgeons. The sale includes discounts on a VNR Cairo Pro with five hand pieces. The Spectra G6 headlight, which is awesome, oral surgery instrumentation, and in-office bone graft kit components. This is an incredible deal, so don't forget to ask your KLS reps about this. So please enjoy. We that one was frequently cited to me during residency for my one of my attendings in particular, along with another saying, which is the enemy of good is better. You know. Right. Uh, right. Um, We'd be doing orthognathic cases, and I remember there's always could be one more little tweak you could do, and let's change this angle or that. And it seems like the more you keep going down that road, sometimes the worse things can become. So anyways, digressing on that one. What recommendations do you have for surgeons doing daily anesthetics, you know, that are hoping to avoid these complications? I mean, I know you recommended kind of being organized, doing drills, having your crash cart, everything set up for emergency. So it's less sweat, you know, and more just regular routine for you in an emergency. But are there any other recommendations you have? Yeah, so a few, maybe slightly more specific things. One, and I know everyone won't agree with me on this, but do you know Bob Bosak? Yes. OMS from Illinois lectures frequently on anesthesia. He's been known to say that if you look at a patient and you think for, again, whatever reason, airway anatomy, body habitus, that you couldn't intubate them in an emergency setting in the office, then maybe you shouldn't be sedating them in the office. And I know often we may break that rule and say, well, I'm just going to do a a very ultralight sedation. And if that's the case, you really have to stick with that and not be pressured to getting them just a little bit deeper when they start to act up a little bit. I think we've all been there. But, you know, that may be an ultra conservative rule, but I happen to think it's a good one. Another thing, and again, everyone's not going to agree with me here, but this is just my way. I've always been a believer in titrating medications as opposed to bolus dosing. And to me, I'd rather spend the extra three minutes or whatever it might take at the beginning. I think you probably make up that time at the end when they recover more quickly. 
as opposed to a delayed recovery. So again, there's more ways than one of doing things. That's just something that I've tried to teach our residents to do. I think another thing is making sure staff is empowered to interject, to speak up, whether it's whether they're the first one to see that the breathing pattern looks a little different during an anesthetic, or maybe you're treating a patient under local and your forceps goes on the wrong tooth and the assistant knows it. I've been saved with a gentle tap on my hand at least one time from doing the wrong thing in that regard. So, you know, empower them as a vital member of your team to be able to interject. I'll also just mention by way of education, preventive education, little plug for OMSNIC as a great resource. So most of us are taking the risk management course anyways, but if you haven't or you aren't required to, I would suggest that. The last one I went to had a multitude of anesthesia cases that were reviewed and those were very helpful. And also take a look at their website. If you haven't been there in a while, they have a ton of on-demand courses, some closed claims that are published, the OMSNA cases, those are resident cases. And by the way, if there are any residency directors listening, you can get a resident stipend if, if a resident submits a case, any kind of a complication that's required special management. You submit it as a case, you'll get a educational stipend for your residency. Oh, nice. And then I guess one other thing in, in the terms of avoidance is just knowing what the EMT response time is in your area. You know, it's been said you should be able to potentially manage an emergency for up to a half hour, but some areas that response time might be four minutes and other times in downtown Manhattan in a busy afternoon, it, it might be 30 minutes or potentially more. So know what it is. And it can be good, I think, to have a relationship with your local EMTs. Most are very willing to come in and recertify staff for CPR or even ACLS, although most of us are doing ACLS at, at regional meetings. But if you have a relationship with them, then they know what our capabilities are. And I think that's helpful too, because I've known it of at least one case, and there are more where EMTs came in and extubated a patient who had been successfully and appropriately intubated by the surgeon because whatever reason, you know, that was their protocol, or they didn't think that the the doctor had the requisite training. So, you know, by having that relationship with them can be helpful. And then try to stay in charge. If you do have an emergency where the EMTs are actually called, try to stay in charge. Yep. I like that. As far as knowing what your emergency response time is, I mean, are you aware of like a website you can look up or things that you, resources that can kind of tell you that? Or is this just like seeing how far away your local emergency crew is? Yeah, in my experience, it's just seeing how far away they are, or if you actually have, you know, a patient that has to be transported for whatever reason, it may be a very low grade level of emergency care where you just want someone transported. 
then you know exactly what it is. Got it. You don't know of any other resource. They may be out there, but I'm not aware of one. Okay. Sounds good. And then the other thing I wanted to touch on, you know, is recently we've had this just really big boom of patients using these GLP receptor agonists like Ozempic and Trulicity. Right. So many people are using this now. And I think it happens so quickly, almost overnight, that maybe some of us aren't too familiar with the these drugs, their names, how to manage it. What kind of concerns or things do you see based on these trepo these drugs and then our anesthesia model yeah so obviously those drugs like you said ozempic trulicity and there are others as well because they delay gastric emptying can cause obvious problems with our patients who are npo even though they've gone through the required time interval whatever that might be so i think the best thing we can do since the ASA has come out with guidelines is follow those. So their guidelines state that for the patient who's on once a day dosing, hold it for 24 hours. For the patient who's on once a week dosing, hold it for a week. Now, obviously, if they're taking it for, you know, diabetes management as opposed to just weight loss, then there may be other consultation needed with the endocrinologist in terms of that management. But that's the ASA guideline. The other thing the ASA notes is that if a patient shows up and they're having GI symptoms, you know, any degree of nausea, vomiting, or distress, then it's probably appropriate, maybe appropriate to defer the case for that day. That makes sense. Yeah, good point to bring up the delayed gastric emptying. It seems like most that I know are doing weekly dosing. So good to know that that is something that has been recommended and we should kind of prepare for. Because let's say they're having surgery on a Monday and they usually take their dose every Monday. You kind of want to get in touch with them maybe two weeks before to say, oh, hey, by the way, skip that Monday before, I don't know. It just takes a little more preparation and you got to be a little more aware of what's going on when it is a weekly dosing, I feel like, compared to daily. So good information and super helpful stuff. You know, in when we were doing some of these case reviews on a prior podcast, I had noticed by reviewing many, many cases that the vast majority of anesthesia complications that had happened where a patient, you know, really had severe complications and and in some cases expired. It seemed like the overwhelming majority were obese patients. And I, I feel like that is something that we need to make sure we're aware of, we're assessing, you know, we're checking how that affects their airway, things like that, because that just seems to be the main, for me, the main common denominator of is pretty morbid obesity. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's very true. I mean, to number one, Bob Bosak's point, you know, they wouldn't be candidates for office anesthesia. And again, just the theme of knowing when to say no. If something's telling you maybe this patient is not a great candidate for office anesthesia, 
and they're probably not. But definitely obesity and other medical comorbidities, for sure. And that's not to say that we don't have crisis situations with healthy younger patients, but for sure, certainly more common in the compromised patients. Yep. All right. Well, that is a very, very helpful review. And I think good to run through that. For those uh, listeners who may have further questions um, for you or me, are you okay if I put some of your contact info in our show notes or what are your thoughts on that? Of course. You know, not that I am the expert, but again, giving my experience and having done a lot of these and having some committee service on OMSDEC and AMOS and so forth. Excellent. Well, Dean, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Um, one last question. Any good books you've read recently that you'd like to recommend to me? So the last book I finished is not something that's going to be very inspiring or motivational. It was just a fun book. I discovered this fiction writer, Carl Hyacin. Have you ever heard of him? No. He writes books that are seen in the Keys, the Florida Keys. Okay. And he just comes up with these funny, quirky characters, you know, all sorts of outlaws and scoundrels. And it's just entertaining stuff. Summer read. Uh, he's got many books. The last one I read was a, a funny name. The book is called Bad Monkey. So nothing very inspiring. That's the last one. Okay. And then I was hoping you would have a good movie for me because I know you sometimes ask that. I haven't seen a great movie in a while. The last good series I saw was Succession. I enjoy that. Okay, nice. Did you see that HBO series? No, I haven't. I mean, that's on my list. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good good recommendation. I'm in the middle of watching Suits. Did you ever watch that? I, I saw the first couple, and then for whatever reason, I didn't stay with it. Okay. I maybe go back to it. Yeah, and I know for as as surgeons, it's always a little, you know, cringy to deal with lawyers, and uh, we try to avoid them at all costs. But no, that, that's a really exciting series. This is very long. I think there's eight or nine seasons. Okay. Night Agent. You know, the Night Agent is a good one if you like spy type movies. Um, it's a series on Netflix. So good stuff. I rewatched Seinfeld recently and I just went to see him live a few weeks ago and he's, a, I'm a big fan of Seinfeld. So I love comedy and all the, you know, his content. I just love it, how clean he is and how he focuses on all the funny nuances of everyday life and his jokes. Yeah. His car. What's the series in the cars? Yeah. Comedians in cars getting coffee. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. It's excellent. And to that, theme there's a new fraser out too oh really i didn't know that yeah fraser however many years later oh that's fantastic well good a lot of good stuff out there to, to read and watch and good content always i've been reading a lot of i don't know if you're interested in any of this stuff but relationship type books on audible i listen to books you know as a commute yeah i do too yep and there's, you know, for some reason I've moved from health type stuff to 
relationship type stuff. And then uh, sometimes I go to like thinking, you know, improve your thoughts type of a thing. But recently, some there's just some really good relationship ones that have I've come upon. There's one called How to Improve Your Marriage Without Talking About It. Let's see, that one drew my eye because I just love improving things without communicating because I'm such a bad communicator at times. So I highly recommend that if people want to improve your marriage. Really good book. And then Sue Johnson wrote this book called Hold Me Tight, which is kind of understanding the psychology of men and women and how we interact and what, you know, women are kind of their key desires and men and key fears and desires and how sometimes we can get in the cycle of, you know, being misunderstood and hurting each other and then vice versa, how we can kind of help each other in an upward spiral. So there's my relationship advice for the day. Actually, I did just download an Audible book that may be a little more inspirational, certainly more inspirational than Bad Monkey, but it's written by a hospice nurse giving her experiences with dying patients, and it's called The In-Between. Okay. In-Between Life and, and Death. So I expect that one will be a little more possibly inspirational. I haven't actually started that, but it's, it's in my audio audible file. Awesome. Well, good. I, that's some good stuff for me to, to think about and work on. I learned a lot from our discussion here today that I'm going to take back to my office and my team and my staff. So really appreciate you running through some of this stuff with me. And I'm glad our specialty is working to always keep us on the ball and sharpened with our anesthesia techniques and you know habits and things we're doing in our office. I think it's critical for all of us. As you're saying, to res- respect that role that we can play and that I don't know what to call it other than a gift or a blessing that we have to do anesthesia because I really do think it is a tremendous thing that we can offer to our patients and so we need to have the proper respect and constantly be doing what we can to keep those skills sharp and prepared for for any emergencies sounds good well thank you so much uh, Dean and let's reconnect in the future thanks talk to you later have fun Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. For more information on these podcasts, please visit everydayoralsurgery.com. I love feedback and would be very grateful if you would reach out to me via my email, grantstukey at gmail.com, and let me know what you thought of this episode. Or you can text me at 720-441-6059. Additionally, if you have any topics you'd like to hear about or if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, please, please email or text me. I found many of my interviewees through people who have been contacting me and have been listening and I've gotten so many great uh, ideas for more podcasts and that's what helps keep keep the podcast rolling. So really appreciate you making that extra effort and helping me out with uh, feedback and knowing what to do next on the podcast. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.